there's stories that are about when somebody's near death that they start seeing things. And of course, I don't know if they're hallucinations. I mean, for all I know, it could be real. None of us know what happens when you die until we die. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 73rd episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page where supporters can join up at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and they all help to keep bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like stickers and totes. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out a link in the show notes to learn more about that. It's also completely fine if you don't want to know more about that, because times are tough, and if you just want to listen to a nice show about printmaking and enjoy what you hear, we want you to do just that. Print friends, we're happy to tell you that after two years, Pine Copper Lime merch has finally arrived. We've got things available like stickers, totes, shirts, and onesies with our logo on it. But we didn't stop there. Do you love Hieronymus Cock? I mean, who doesn't? That 16th century Flemish print publisher was instrumental in the history of printmaking and worked with some of the greats, including Peter Bruchel the Elder. Now thanks to your friends at PCL, you can get a sticker or shirt that tells the world you love that print publisher, Hieronymus Cock. Just check out the link in the show notes. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Products like Armheim 1618, a high-quality, low-cost paper made in collaboration with a historic paper mill near Arnheim. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, swears by it for printing lithographs. And our friend of the podcast and guest of episode number four, Mr. Miles Calvert, evangelizes its use yearly, encouraging his students to participate in Speedball's New Impressions Contest, where they produce work in every print medium. So if you're looking for an affordable paper that can support whatever inky ideas you can throw at it, then head over to speedballart.com to find out where you can pick up the start of your next edition. My guest this week is Lisette Chavez. You may know Lisette from her most excellent internet presence through Holy Press and Show Me Your Print Shop Instagram accounts. When we recorded this episode, Lisette was joining me at a very vulnerable time. It was just a few weeks after she'd lost her husband Craig suddenly and quite unexpectedly. In this episode, we talk a lot about that loss how she's coping with it through art and community, as well as how she feels that making work about death for many years helped prepare her for the grief that comes with a loss such as this. I know print friends that at this time, a lot of people in the United States and around the world are finding death close to them through the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm just gonna say, make sure you're in a good place to listen to this one. Lizette is someone who has incredible insights into death and art, and her vulnerability and wisdom have the potential to be a great comfort to people listening. I know they were to me. 
just be sure that you're practicing self-care and if you need to hit pause and come back a little later on this episode's in the archive it's not going anywhere so without further ado sit back relax and prepare to be open vulnerable and brave with Lizette Chavez hi Lisette, how's it going hi it's going good thank you for calling <laughs> yeah thank you for joining me I I feel like we had a, a bit of back and forth organizing everything, which always happens, but yeah. I'm really happy to be finally chatting with you and, you know, talking to someone exactly 12 hours away from me is, is a first, I think, on the podcast. That's so strange. That's so strange. I'm not even aware of anything at seven in the morning. <laughs> so luckily, I'm grateful for you calling me in the evening. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to hear it. I'm, luckily for me, I'm a bit of a morning person, and so... I can uh, do interviews before work, and then about four o'clock, my brain turns into a pumpkin, and I'm completely useless. So. <laughs> <laughs> a pumpkin. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think we're all in that mushy part right now. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, it's, it's a mushy kind of a year. Well, before we sort of dive into talking about you and your art, would you give a little introduction so people just know who you are, where you are? And what you do. My name is Lisette Chavez. I was born and raised in South Texas in um, an area called the Rio Grande Valley, which is the border of South Texas and Mexico. Um, I grew up in a little town called Harlingen. And there's basically not much there. It's just lots of like crops and farmers and things like that. I'm a multidisciplinary artist. I'm a trained lithographer. I'm also an educator, and some of your listeners might know me as the creator of Show Me Your Print Shop, mm -hmm. which is basically just uh, me curating photos of print shops from all over the world. Yeah, I live in San Antonio, Texas now. I work out of my home studio, which I call Holy Press. Mm -hmm. So it's my the place where I draw, the place where I make prints, the place where I hang out with my dog, Prince. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that other prince. <laughs> but yeah, I've just kind of made a home out of this uh, wonderful city that really supports artists. Yeah, beautiful. So you're saying that, yeah, you grew up in the Rio Grande. Mm -hmm. And so what role did art play in that part of your life? Oh, gosh, art didn't really play a huge role as far as like, there's not really like a contemporary museum around. Mm -hmm. I kind of just always loved to draw my mom was always kind of making things. She was always doing embroidery and like, you know, doing drawings on pillows and then doing embroidery on them. So she was always kind of making stuff like, like a person who crafts a lot. My dad was a car salesman. So he was kind of always working. They really got to see him. But um, as far as art's concerned, I feel like she was the person that really kind of showed me how to draw. Mm -hmm. I remember she used to take some of my children's books that had a lot of images of like Mickey Mouse and Goofy and she would sit next to me and um, she would have, she would have a, a piece of paper and I'd have a piece of paper. <laughs> She's a little uh, obsessive about detail. Mm. And so she'd be like, no, 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 it doesn't look like that. Draw it again. <laughs> so That's some good art well, training, I think, right there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, well, other mothers, <laughs> other mothers would kind of, you know, nurture like mistakes and stuff. Mine didn't. And so 
I think it really kind of has contributed to the way that I draw in such a kind of realistic way and like super detailed stuff. But yeah, so she was kind of the one who really introduced me to art. And then I uh, was kind of always the kid that people, you know, in high school would like come over to the desk and like see what I was drawing. Mm -hmm. And my art teacher just kind of took an interest in what I was doing. And one day kind of pulled me aside and was like, you know, you can make a living out of this. Like you can be an artist, like as a career. And I was kind of like, what, (laughs) you know? So I think had she not done that, I would have never even thought about it. It just, you know, I I lived in such a small town. I was really sheltered. And so, yeah, so she's the one that kind of paved the way for me. Yeah. And so that's where it kind of started. The, The local museum would have shows. I remember the last time I went to a show there, they had, it was Christmas time, and um, they had a show of Christmas trees that were decorated by different departments within the city. So, like, one was a tree that the fire department decorated, another one was a tree that the police department decorated, and so that was the kind of exposure that I had, right. you know. You're like, so this is what a museum is, none. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was kind of ridiculous, but... But yeah, as far as art's concerned, that's kind of where I kind of came from. Yeah. Well, that's amazing that you got to have that experience of, of that one person coming in and pointing out to you that you've got something that maybe not everybody has and that there actually is an option and a path for you. Because I think I sometimes wonder about, you know, all the all the kids out there in the world who might just have just missed that special teacher at the right place at the right time and all the artists that we that we lack because of it but I'm I'm glad that you were you had someone who was able to sort of be like hey yeah definitely and I'm I'm fortunate that I've had several someones do that at different parts of my life like one tell me about you know becoming an artist one telling me about going to college one telling me about becoming uh, or going to graduate school so mm. I think about that a lot as an educator about how being honest with students and complimenting them, all of that is so important just to get them to to really have that, to build that confidence to go forward, you know. And so was it in college where you first encountered printmaking? Yes, it was an undergrad and I think they were, monotypes was probably the first thing that I started making and then I went on to doing uh, intaglio, which I really hate, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think they're beautiful and I think like etchings are just the most amazing pieces ever, but I just do not have the patience mm. for it. I just don't. That's funny because I feel like plenty of people would say that about lithography. I just, you know, I need like immediate the gratification and, and I just can see what I'm drawing like immediately. I can, okay, you know? I, I see that. Yeah, that it's you, you, you put the image on the stone, you see the image coming together and then, well, and then it gets a little bit hairy with the, yeah, the, the, the chemical side. Yeah, of I mean, yeah, definitely the etching process can make it or break it. But I love that gamble, you know? Mm. I love that there's so much. I actually didn't find lithography until I went to graduate school um, mm. and I studied under Ryan O'Malley. But um, he was the one that, yeah, he was the one that introduced me to lithography. It's weird because, you know, like you're in, you know, studio art classes and you're taking ceramics and you're taking sculpture and all kinds of stuff. And I really hadn't touched on lithography at all. 
And so I feel like it was the last like medium that I found and just really fell in love with it. It was like finding my best friend, Mm. you know, it was just kind of like, where is this thing that, or what is this thing that nobody told me about? And we were like kindred spirits, you know? So it just kind of made sense. Yeah, absolutely. Before we like sort of jump in and start talking about your, your work, I think that we need to give a bit of context to it because you've talked, I think, really bravely and really openly about a significant loss that you recently had and how you're planning on moving forward and using your art to process it. But if you're feeling comfortable and okay today, could you speak to that a bit, just sort of letting people know what you want them to know in the context of your story and your art practice, I guess? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of my art has kind of revolved around this kind of preoccupation with death. I've had a lot of traumas that deal with death, and they started kind of when I was about four years old. The first time that it happened, I uh, my mother took me to my grandmother's funeral and kind of held me over my grandmother's body over her over the coffin Mm -hmm. I think in her like deep grief she really wanted me to see that that was the last time I was going to see my grandmother so I was four years old I was too short to reach the coffin to see her and so she like picked me up and like held me over my grandmother's body which now after talking to professionals (laughs) have realized that children aren't really supposed to go to funerals until they're at least 10 years old Mm. So that was something that kind of started this like preoccupation with death. And so anytime anybody talked about death throughout my childhood, I was kind of like all ears about it. Um, And there's a lot of other weird stuff that have kind of happened along the way. But about 10 weeks ago, one morning I woke up to what I think was my husband's soul leaving his body, Mm. or at least that's how I describe it. Um, It was unexpected. He was four days short of turning 42. So it just kind of came completely out of left field and feels like a guillotine has just been dropped on my life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been, again, 10 weeks, but I think I'm comfortable talking about it because I have had so much experience with death in my life. I think that, you know, we were so close. just as two people just like a union Mm -hmm. we were best friends and I and I feel like I haven't seen him in years Mm -hmm. so even though somebody might think you know 10 weeks like it's so recent but for me it feels like an eternity yeah you know that this has happened it's like time has really slowed down completely and so um it's been a roller coaster for sure but uh, as I've as I've mentioned in you know in our emails and stuff like in the Instagram posts that I feel very fortunate that I've had this very confrontational relationship with death. It's funny because all my friends know it, all the people that follow mm-hmm. me know it, mm-hmm. and so one of the conversations that comes up a lot when I talk to friends about it is just like I can't believe that this happened to you. <laughs> you know, of all people. Yeah. 
there's something about it that feels very predetermined. There's something about it that feels like fate, like, like I am supposed to deal with this and I am supposed to talk about it, to talk about my experience. And I, I love that you had mentioned, you know, that a lot of people were, you know, preoccupied with death right now because of COVID. So many people have lost relatives and friends and, you know, we see it on the news and it's just like death is everywhere. And um, I think it's very important to talk about it and to not ignore it. Absolutely. And that's, it's something that I've held really close to my heart and my belief system and my belief system around what it is to have a good life is recognizing that it will end. And so will the lives of people you love. And, you know, more, as you said, with COVID, it is so incredibly present right now. And I think that people like yourself who have experienced death and have been thinking about it and have been confronting it probably are going to be a bit guides a little bit, I think, as everyone is starting to to have to confront this inevitable that in our modern world, we're so good at distraction, diversion, distraction, diversion, distraction, diversion, and we can kind of run from this aspect of life that's always with us. Yeah. Right. And, and the idea of running away, I mean, from something so taboo, like what Mm -hmm. is so difficult and different about it right now is that we can't go anywhere. Yeah. So you're forced to deal with it. And that's why people have become so depressed and just overwhelmed with it because they're not used to dealing with death so much, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas this has been something that I've been researching since I was able to check out library books in grade school, (laughs) you know. What, What do you think that it maybe was about yourself or your personality or maybe the way you were raised that led you to sort of move towards it and kind of move towards the trauma as opposed to just sort of shutting down and backing away, which I think is what a lot of a lot of people do, particularly when they have a trauma quite young, they lock it away. But it sounds like, as you said, as soon as you could check out library books, you were moving towards it, you were moving into it to try and understand, it seems like. My grandmother that, you know, the the one that I my mother held me over Mm -hmm. in her coffin we had been visiting her in a nursing home before it happened. And I would play this game with my mother where we would walk down the hallway and I would look at the numbers and she'd be like, okay, where's grandma? Mm -hmm. And so when I saw her body, when she kind of held me over her, I mean, of course the embalming process, swelling, like all those kinds of things really, you know, just almost like deform somebody's face a bit and you don't really recognize them. And so I kept telling her, and I'm a pretty stubborn person, so I'm sure as a kid I was like, no, that's not grandma, you know? And I just had a lot of conviction, like, when I said it, and and it would bother her. And so in her grief, in trying to get me to understand that grandma had died, even though death was so abstract to me, and I really couldn't, I was too young to understand what had happened. But after the funeral, she took me to the nursing home, And we played that game where I counted the numbers and we got to the room and the room was empty. The Mm -hmm. bed was empty. And she said, grandma's gone. She's not here anymore. She died. She went to heaven. 
And I think that posed a huge question mark in my mind. And so anytime, like I said, that anybody talked about death or skeletons or the body or anything like that, granted at the same time, you know, I come from like a very deeply rooted Catholic family. And so the body is also something that you see a lot in church. You know, the body, they talk about the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. So it's all of that coupled with everything that I'm experiencing as a kid. And so my mother, so after all that happened, um, my mother was the youngest of 13 children. So I was always going to funerals of all my uncles and aunts and cousins. And I remember I was in high school and a friend was, you know, really nervous at lunch. And she looked almost like she wanted, she was like nauseated. And I was like, what's wrong? And she was like, I have to go to a funeral today and I've never been to one. And I remember I started laughing in the cafeteria (laughs) and she said, why are you laughing? It's not funny. And I said, well, I've been to so many. It's like a joke. Like I can't even believe that you haven't been to one. And I was like 15, 16. And so I think that I went to more funerals than most people growing up. And, uh, I used to, my dad used to joke with my mom and say that she was a professional mourner because she would like read obituaries and, and say like, oh, I know him. Like, I'm going to go to that funeral or I've, I, that's so-and-so's cousin. I'm going to go to that funeral. And so in my little punk phase, I was like, mom, you're so goth, (laughs) you know? And so getting older and becoming, I mean, it was a real juvenile thing to say to her, but as an older person, I realized that she was the person who wanted to take care of those people who were in pain. Mm-hmm. And so I love her for that, you know, and I see it more, more so than ever now, especially now that she's taking care of me, like while I'm kind of grieving Craig's death. So yeah, I went to a lot of funerals. So it was just kind of like a constant reminder. I, I don't think that I could really get away from it. And My mom talks a lot about death, too. Mm -hmm. Like, she talks a lot about death. And that was something that I kind of didn't realize until my husband and I had started dating, where (laughs) he would come through the door, and my mom would say, like, hey, Craig, you want some coffee? Like, come and sit down. Let's have some coffee and just, like, chat, you know? Uh And so he would sit down, and she'd be like, do you hear about that bus crash that happened the other day? Like, you know, 10 people died, and... And like, I didn't pick up on it. And then I remember we left and we were going to go on a date one day. And, and he said, Lisa, your mom is always talking about death. Like, that's all she talks about. And I was like, no, she doesn't. And he said, yes, she does. (laughs) And then he would do this cue. Like every time he came over and she would bring up death, he would like, look at me and do this like, gesture with his finger. And we would just start laughing hysterically. And my mom was just kind of like, what? Like, what are you guys laughing at? Yeah, we're just having a chat. What's the deal? Yeah. Yeah. And then my brother got in on it and my dad got in on it. And so it's like this inside joke that we have that every time she starts talking about death, we just start laughing hysterically. And it's probably cruel, but, and, and it's funny because, well, it's not funny, but it's, I mean, it's dark sense of humor that I have about it now, but I mean, I'd rather laugh than cry, but, uh, she has also had 
traumas with death in her life. She kind of like walked into a room uh, when she was a little girl. She was at a funeral and she walked into an embalming room mm. and they were draining the bodies mm-hmm. um, in a very old fashion is all I'm going to say. But so she was traumatized with death, too. And I didn't learn that until I was much older. So I think that's where it kind of stems from. But it's weird that it happened to her and then she did that to me. Yeah. So it's become this like weird cycle. Well, and it seems like you both had the same reaction to it too, which was again, which is like to to move towards it rather than shut down and, and try and block it from your life. I guess speaking of sort of morticians, uh, you were maybe thinking at one point that you wanted to be a mortician yourself because I, you you were interested in in death and the body and everything around it. And it was between undergrad and graduate school, correct? Yes. I had a aunt and uncle that were hosts at a funeral home. And my mother <laughs> used to go have coffee with them like all the time Uh so she'd be like oh be right back I'm gonna go have coffee with your aunt and uncle and she'd go to the funeral home to go hang out and one day I you know was having a hard time because I moved back home and it was it was a really small town and so there wasn't many art jobs to take advantage of and I had just graduated from undergrad and I think I went to the funeral home one day with her to go see my aunt and uncle and just say hi And the lady that was there said, you know, your uncle said you have an interest in like, you know, mortuary science and stuff. And I said, yeah. And she's like, you want to go see the coffin room? Mm. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we walked in there and she just like opened the door slowly. And I and I kind of like, you know, skipped inside and started like opening the coffins and like running my fingers down the lining, like the satin ruffles and stuff. And she just looked at me and she was like, I don't think I've ever seen anybody so excited to see coffins (laughs) in my life. And she said, most of the time I open the door and people start crying. Mm. And I said, are you serious? And I said, this is like a car show for me. And she was like, well, maybe you should, maybe you should think about mortuary science. And so she talked to my uncle and they basically decided, you know, well, if she's really interested in it, I mean, she needs to see an embalming because that's kind of like Mm -hmm. the most intense thing that's going to happen. And if she can't handle that, then she can't do it, you know? So it was kind of like a make or break situation, and so they set it up. It was a few days before Christmas. And I think I was about 21 years old, 22. I was really young. And I showed up and the bomber was there and he had just kind of parked and had a body in the hearse. And he started kind of taking out the little gurney that the body was on and it was covered in a white sheet and he brought it in and he just kept staring at me the whole time like I don't know if he thought I was gonna like squirm or or cry I don't know what he thought I was gonna do but I was calm the whole time and I was just watching and it was an older woman that had died she was probably like in her I'd say like early 80s maybe late 70s looked like would have been you know your grandmother Mm -hmm. 
And he laid her down on the table and he said, you know, I'm going to wash her body and then we're going to get started. And I said, okay. And he like turned over her palm and he said, look at, look at the, look at the bottom side of, or he said, look at, look at the side of her palm and you'll notice that, you know, she's getting rigor mortis as her, her color is changing and it was kind of like purplish. Mm -hmm. And he said, by the time we're done with the, um, formaldehyde it's like a peach color so it'll look as if she's blushing Mm. and that for me was a kind of I think really intense part of the process that the part that really just like touched me Mm. you know it's very visceral and so he I won't go into details but um did everything that you know eyes you know mouth everything Mm -hmm. all the process that kind of has to do with embalming a body and then sure enough, you know, as the blood was pumping out and replaced with the formaldehyde, she looked like she was coming to life. Mm. And I thought it was a really beautiful process of honoring the dead and bringing her to a more, uh, quote unquote, like suitable state, like for her family to, mm. to really see her one more time. And so I was just completely just shocked and just like, overwhelmed with how different the body changed throughout the entire process and it was very ceremonial to me and at the end when he was done he said and that's it it's like taking out the trash somebody Mm. has to do it Mm. and I just my world came crumbling when he said that Mm -hmm. and and I said are you serious and I said I totally disagree with you And I said, it's not like taking out the trash. You know, you're doing this beautiful thing for a family so that they can see their loved one once more. And I said, she's not trash, you know, and I would never want you to say trash that my father was trash, you know. And so I left and just kind of was like to hell with that guy. Yeah. And um, I remember I drove home and I was crying and I came home and my dad was like, why are you crying? Like what happened? And, and I told him what the, what that guy said. And my dad's like, Oh, I thought you were crying because you like were overwhelmed with the process. And Mm -hmm. I said, no, I said, I thought it was beautiful. And I said, but he said this stupid crap and it just really upset me, you know? And so he said, well, that's what he has to do to become desensitized to do his job. And eventually it will happen to you too. And I said, no, I don't think I would ever become that person. And I said, I'm not that person at all. And so he didn't really support it. My father didn't really support it. And so I think had that man not said that, it probably would have taken that route. And I think that it was fate that kind of, directed me towards the path to become an artist who talks about death Mm -hmm. because I think that had that day been different I may have taken a different route in my life yeah I think particularly because you you had a strong reaction to the process as a thing of beauty and really understanding that gift that it's going to give mourners right something really incredible and I think that there is that isn't there even like a phrase that's mortician's humor or something that actually is specifically about black humor? And 
I agree with you that I don't think it's inevitable. I think that it's a way that some people have been kind of socialized to deal with upsetting things. But I think we do have a choice and you can fully embrace it and kind of push nothing away and process it that way. Or you can keep pushing back the feelings of the intensity. And, you know, two, you get to the point where you're saying really awful things like that. Yeah, it was just awful. I thought it was awful. It still pisses me off when I think about it, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely does sound like that was, it was meant to kind of, to push you back into into thinking about um, a different way to kind of talk about death and dialogue with death and that you said you've done it kind of through your art. And something else that you've said that I, I really thought was quite significant is that you've touched on a little bit is that when you've had death in your life, you've been thinking about it since you were young, you've been making art about it, that that actually helped you in the, the experiences that you've had with grief, particularly your most recent one. And it reminds me of I, this phrase that I believe is Buddhist, but I'm not entirely sure that's sort of like, the problem is you think you have time. And this idea that people push back facing death, thinking about it, deal with it, dealing with it until it's in their lap. And then I think it's much more overwhelming. Whereas it sounds like you've had the experience of, of thinking about it and dealing with it and processing it through your making, through your art practice. It's actually sort of prepared you for the times that death has come into your life would you say that that's that that's true that I've kind of read that correctly oh definitely I mean I told a friend the other day that you know I was like for lack of a better word I feel like it's been training for what Mm. I'm going through right now and you know I had to arrange my husband's funeral and all of that stuff I had a singer come out who is a tenor and it sounded like an opera like Mm. while he was being buried and it was really beautiful and I'm glad that I had the strength to do it, mm-hmm. you know, and I think a lot about, you know, even when we were talking about this podcast and, you know, having had this tragedy happen so recently, but I think about the people that I can possibly help, the people that I can possibly comfort mm-hmm. while I'm grieving. And that is something that I'm a cancer on the zodiac. <laughs> so I, I love to take care of yeah. people and I'm, very loyal and protective of my friends. And, and if I can offer my love to other people during their grief or during their depression, you know, I would love to do that. You know, that, that would make me feel better about my situation if I can help others, Mm. you know, who are struggling. And so that's really the reason that I came on here was so that I know that people are so afraid of death that they really don't like talking about it. I mean, I my friends know that I talk about death all the time. It's a very casual conversation, you know, and if people don't like it, then they kind of pull away and that's okay, you know, but um, it's just been such a huge part of my life. I just kind of can't deny that conversation when it comes up and, uh, I was fortunate that in 2009, I had a chance to go to Oaxaca during Dia de los Muertos. Mm. And that was really the turning point for me not fearing death as much. 
and 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 being more accepting of it and it was because I went with a group from school like from college to to go visit like during that time and this was before Coco the movie Coco came out and all that stuff and now I think there's a lot of tourists during that time but it was the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen in my life you know there was like several piece orchestras like in the cemetery at night and Mm. there's just like bushels and bushels of like flowers and like lots of incense and food and there's like you know 10 or 15 people at like one grave and it's just like surrounded by flowers and they're singing and it's just there's candles everywhere there's lanterns everywhere there's little kids running around with masks on and it was just such a it was such a joyous occasion and it was at a cemetery yeah where as an American we're we're not used to people celebrating at a cemetery you know not at people all. avoid it at all costs and so it was just so beautiful to me and it was surreal and I remember I came back to the states after that trip and I just felt different hmm. and that was where I started the work that was called Early Morning, like M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was based on me being confronted with death at an early age. But um, it was really that trip to Oaxaca that really changed my entire perspective on death. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And just so completely the opposite of the quiet reverence and fear that you feel, as you say, in American cemeteries. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like there was a there's a cemetery quite close to my house and growing up and I, I was always just fascinated by it. Like I wanted to walk through it and read every headstone and think about the person underneath it and think about the date that they died and think about that time period. And, you know, I remember just being really drawn to it and always just sort of rubbernecking it whenever we would pass it. It was between our house and the local grocery store. And, Mm -hmm. you know, whenever I would go in, there would just be this incredible stillness there. And that sounds like what you're describing in Oaxaca. It's just the opposite, like lights and candles and flowers and children and and just a a really like... It was a celebration of life. A celebration. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly like what I thought about it when I came back. I was like, you know, we shouldn't be we should be celebrating somebody's life, you know, and, and they believe, you know, and, and the people of Oaxaca believe like, it, like you'll see petals of marigolds like on the floor, like little trails. And they believe that the spirit follows the trails home and they come back to visit the families. So in a way the dead never really disappear and go away. They come back to visit every year. And I think that's really beautiful that, you know, we're so kind of afraid of our own mortalities and this idea that we're going to be gone forever. But I think in their beliefs, you know, you're not like the body might be gone, but the spirit Mm -hmm. is still coming back to the families to be reunited with their loved ones. And I think it's just so beautiful. Um, I, in my early twenties, I used to go to a lot of cemeteries, like just, it didn't matter where I was living. I did it when I was in Tucson during graduate school. I did it when I was living in Corpus Christi and I did it when I was living in Harlingen again. But um, I would go to cemeteries and just walk and just like read the tombstones and 
I didn't know, but my mother had said, I think I mentioned it to my mom one time that I, that I did that, like when I was, you know, depressed or like bored, I would just kind of just go to the cemetery and park and just walk around. And, um, my mom said, that's so weird that you used to do that because your grandpa used to go to a local cemetery by the house and I would always be coming home and, and I'd see his truck parked and I'd pull over and I'd say, daddy, you know, why are you at the cemetery? Like that's such a dark place, you know? And he would say, sweetheart, this is the safest place. You know, the dead can't harm you. Mm. And it's so true that it's really the safest place we can all be, but it's really the place that people are most terrified of. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of something in the, this I think quite common in the tattoo world that tattoo artists will say they won't tattoo someone's name on someone else unless that person has died because oh, okay. they can't harm that person after they've died. You know, it's like that, oh. like that, mm-hmm. um, you can't have that regret because they, you know, like wh- whatever it is, you know, all the, all the various ways that people significantly hurt each other while they're alive. So it's that same idea, right? That like, the dead can't harm you. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just have, I, I just have so many just different questions. Yeah. I was just thinking, I was like, I really wish we lived in the same city so we could just like get coffee and like just do a deep dive on this like once a week. My life has been really strange and I'm lucky that I have the personality to talk about them. Well, and if, you know, if I've mentioned before, you've been really open on, on social media talking about Craig's death, and you've even said that you want to start making work about it. And I didn't know if yeah. this is something that you've, have you started that journey yet? Are you still kind of waiting for things settle? Like, how does, how does an artist know when she can take something like this on? For me, my creative process is kind of really specific. The way that I can best describe it is that I get visions Mm. is kind of the way that I describe it. I've also described it as like dreams. So you may have had a dream and you tell your friend, oh, I had this really weird dream. You know, like there was this man in a top hat and, you know, he had a cane and we were like outside of a building and blah, blah, blah. And you'll go on and on about it. And if the person tells you, well, how did you know it was a man? Or how did you know it was a top hat? Mm. You know, and and your gut reaction is like, well, because I know. Right. You know, that's what I dreamt. And so my visions are that strong that I know what they are. So they're almost like these waking, like, dreams. But what happens is... um you know, like when you're talking to somebody and they're really spaced out and far away and you can't even get their attention Mm -hmm. because they're so spaced out. I don't know if you've experienced that with friends before, Yeah, but that happens to me. So when the visions get so intense that they become almost like movies that are playing in my head and I can be somewhere bored and I'll just kind of space out and like the movie starts and I'm just like in it. And when that starts happening, that's when I have to like purge it out of my body and out of my mind. And so I can put it off and put it off. But I know that when I can't stop thinking about it and I start spacing out that I really need to make that thing as soon as possible. That's incredible. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's taken me years to describe it, but I think in doing so many artist talks and teaching and describing it, describing the process to my students that I realized that I have some art, some students that think the same way, Mm. you know, not, not everybody does. And and sometimes I'll say, you know, sometimes uh, I'll explain something and some of you can be like, what the hell is she talking about? And some of you are going to get it and that's okay, (laughs) you know? And I say because we're all different in our creative process, but that's how mine works. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, I just turned 38 this summer. So it's, I've had a lot of practice with like how to gauge my thoughts and how like to make them and execute them and that kind of stuff. And when they're being very persistent and I need to like get that thing out of me. And so something else that I was thinking about when I was looking at your work and when I was reading the fantastic catalog that you put together from your exhibition earlier this year that was called From the Horse's Mouth. Yeah, I was really, (laughs) really, really enjoyed it. And so that was in sort of spring um, of this year. And that one was still kind of around the theme of death, but also around fear and family legends. Could you speak to that? Just sort of people get more context for like your most recent body of work. Sure. So I was at a restaurant with my husband and I looked around and I noticed that everybody, all the tables around us, everybody was on their phones. Mm. And I was looking at them. I was watching, you know, as artists, we like people watch all the time. Yeah. And I was watching for a significant amount of time and nobody was talking to each other. And I told Craig, I was like, you know, I've been watching these people for so long and like nobody's looking up from their phones to talk to each other. Like what the hell is going on? You know, like this is disgusting. And so it just, I remember on the ride home and I thought about the countless amount of hours that my, my parents had spent with me around the dinner table and just telling us ghost stories, you know, and a lot of them were just like, it was just folklore from like my family And uh, my mother used to live next to this wooded area that was haunted. And so she would always tell us stories about it. But the show kind of began began with that, that that I was concerned about technology and how it was taking away that dinner time talk and how it's awful because that's where you really get to know your family. And so I just wondered, oh my goodness, like I wonder if there's you know, these younger people that just like have no idea how rich the culture is, you know, have no idea how rich their family stories are. I felt like if I shared my stories without giving them the stories that they would ask me what the stories were. And so it would force people to have conversation with me throughout the show. And that was why I didn't include a lot of the stories in the catalog was so that you would be forced to either contact me or to ask somebody who knew mm. the stories that I was talking about. And so it's a lot about making the audience work for it <laughs> and not like give them everything. Yeah. But um, it's unfortunate because of COVID, that show was supposed to open in April and I wasn't able to. So it's kind of on hold right now until things lighten up with this virus. But mm. that's where the idea came from. And I remember reading about that in, in the catalog and just really feeling just a huge like I had a very emotional reaction to what you were pointing out that that because 
family gatherings, each person retreats into their own world that is their phone after dinner, that that story time is missing because I'm turning 36 this year. So we're about the same generation, which I think is really the last people who have significant memories of pre-smartphone days. Um, Yeah, definitely. I didn't have a smartphone until graduate school. So you know, probably like, you know, it was the, yeah, yeah, the, same. the funny thing that we haven't even talked about is the fact that, yeah, we were at University of Arizona at the same time and didn't, didn't know it, <laughs> yeah, that which is, is so wild. Weird. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until graduate school that I got my first smartphone. And so, you know, growing up my entire childhood at home, you know, zero to 18 was talking to people and talking to grandparents and talking to cousins when they came over and learning family stories and just learning about the people in our lives. And it, it, the thing is, is that it's not always comfortable and it's not always entertaining and that's okay. (laughs) What happens now is that because people retreat into their smartphones, it is always comfortable and it is constantly entertaining and there's no kind of muscle for interest being built, I feel like, in these stories, in the act of listening a little bit longer and hearing something you didn't expect, like holding out, you know, for for that story. And it's okay to be bored, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's okay to be bored. It's like that's where great ideas stem from, right. you know, when you're spacing out. Something that that occurred to me too when I was reading the catalog and looking at the images and even listening to you now sort of talk about the stories about your grandmother and your mother is that I feel like women have a particular bond with death, that women have a real fascination with it. And, you know, you think about, for instance, like the world of true crime is very, you know, very, very female, female Mm -hmm. identifying centric. You know, it's... It's the people who are the, are buying the the true crime fiction, or sorry, the true crime nonfiction in the Barnes and Noble section. You know, long before we had podcasts about it and you know oxygen shows about it, like they're always women, and like ox- yeah. oxygen is like the true crime network now, like the program that was originally for women, and so women have <laughs> this real bond with death and want you know are fascinated by it, and. I'm really interested in it and read about it and, uh, and think oh, about definitely, it. definitely, yeah. And so I kind of have some of my own theories, but I'd love to know why maybe you think that is, that, that we get to have a particular kind of bond with death. Um, I think as women, we're nurtured to, to be okay with our feelings and to be emotional, whereas with men, you know they're so uncomfortable with crying in front of women or crying in front of other men. It's, it's, it's awful. Like how toxic masculinity can be. And it's unfortunate because, you know, it's okay to cry. Mm -hmm. You know, I think strength and weakness go hand in hand. You know, you need to be able to feel one to get to the other. And I, you know, maybe I, I, I personally like love true crime. Like I mostly watch like the first 48 mm-hmm. all the time. I've seen all the episodes and I love the fright factor. Uh, I also was raised Catholic and, and so, which I mentioned before, but like, I've, <laughs> I think I read an article once that said something about people that were raised Catholic are really into horror movies. Huh. And it's funny because 
a lot of the other people that I know that were raised Catholic are really into horror movies too. And I think it's because we see like the body of Christ and we talk about like the blood and, you know, we see these like really graphic images of like, you know, Jesus being whipped and blood everywhere. And it's really gory. And you just grow up going to church and seeing this stuff, you know, like, and like arrows this, and somebody's the saints. Chest yeah, that's and... what I was going to say. Like all the <laughs> yeah. horrible ways the saints went out. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really graphic. And um, you kind of don't realize it because it's in the context of church. And so it's okay because you're supposed to see that because that's what happened. You know what I mean? But outside of church, if you see something gory, everybody's like, oh, that's disgusting. Mm. You know? Um, but you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is about death. I think that um, as women, we also like are caretakers, mm. you know, so we kind of want to be there for somebody like during their time of need, whereas men are, I mean, I can't speak for all men, of course, but I'm just speaking about like what I know about like as far as like Mexican culture and how like, you know, the men are supposed to kind of like protect the women and they're supposed to like, you know, be the breadwinners and stuff like that. And, and kind of take care of things financially where like the women are supposed to take care of the children and, you know, like all that old fashioned stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that as women, we're just like more in tune with how we grieve maybe Mm -hmm. and maybe not men, but I don't know. That's a kind of a really hard question. Yeah. And it's, I think it, it probably is a question too, that doesn't have a fixed answer. You know, it's it's a it's a fact, but it's probably it's different things are true for different women. You know, some some women, it might be that, as you said, like I loved your answers, which were really societal. And I haven't really thought about it in that context before. But I think I think that that's really astute that because we're socialized in a way where expressing emotion, particularly expressing fear, isn't something that's necessarily seen as weakness for us. And so maybe moving towards our fear is easier because it's like, well, if I get scared, it's okay. I'm, I haven't failed by being scared. Whereas, yeah, the way a lot of men are socialized, that might not be true. And so there's more of a, like, I can't go there because if I, the stakes are higher for me, basically, to go there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was, that kind of reminded me of, I have so many stories. I mean, I have, like, a Rolodex <laughs> of, like, so many stories in my in my family. But, uh I'm trying to remember if it was my grandmother. Well, one of the stories in the from the horse's mouth is about my grandmother while she was dying at her home. Everybody was coming to visit her and my dad had to pee and there was somebody in the restroom. There's it was a very little house out in the country and there was only one restroom. And my dad went outside to pee by this tree and he heard a large animal like snorting. And he turned around and he saw what he thought was a black bull. And so, of course, he just scared the shit out of him. And he starts zipped up his pants and ran back inside. And my mom said that he came in and he was just completely freaked out. And she said, what's wrong? You know, and she said he was like all the color left his face. Mm -hmm. His eyes were like the size of eggs. He was terrified. And he said, there's a black bull outside. And so my mom was like, where? And so they went outside and they were looking around and they didn't see anything. And he said, there was a black bull with chains behind me. Like I saw it. I didn't imagine it. You know, it was right there. 
And then they went home after that night. And the next day, the next morning, they came to see my grandmother again. And of course, she was on her deathbed. And my mom said, how did you sleep, mom? And she said, well, I couldn't sleep because there's this black bull that wouldn't leave me alone all night. Mm. And so my mother, my mother has a lot of stories like that. And now that I think about it, a lot of those stories and, and they're stories that are about when somebody's near death, that they start seeing things. And of course, I don't know if they're hallucinations. I mean, for all I know, it could be real. None of us mm -hmm. know what happens when you die until we die. You know, that's mm -hmm. unfortunate that we won't have those answers until then. But there was another instance where there was, I think, I think it was an aunt of mine. I think her daughter came into the room and she was also on her deathbed. And she said, close the door. Like, why did you open the door? And she said, there's a coffin in the room. And she kept talking about this black coffin that was in the room. And she just mm -hmm. like wouldn't stop talking about the black coffin. And so I don't know of any stories where there was a male or like a man who said something yeah. like that, like in his deathbed, you know, but it, most of the time it's been women mm -hmm. that my mom has kind of shared those stories with me. So that's interesting too. But yeah, I mean, we're all conditioned in certain ways, you know, there's something in there for me that's kind of maybe more, more poetic, but something about the way the process of birth and the process of death are so intertwined. And that's not at all to say that that every every woman has the capacity or the desire to have kids, you know, like for instance, but it's it's kind of more just like something sort of deeper in the sense like because for millennia, because for even before we were humans in human form, females of the species risk themselves creating life and that that they straddle the world to continue the species, you know, that that death is right there, particularly for for humans. You know, it's uh, human human women have a very very difficult birth that's very dangerous, and that there's something about that connection with death that maybe is in there too. That we grow up, you know, you know, before you even decide if if you want to have kids, like you grow up knowing that that it's it's your yours is the body that will. Or yeah. could produce life and in that process it is going to be really painful and it is going to be dangerous if you do it but you're the one who who makes new humans so humans can continue yeah that whole process is a gamble yeah I hadn't thought about it that way but I mean I mean as far as like young women like I think because you have the ability to get pregnant like you know you're constantly worried about yeah. all kinds of stuff like we get we get the worst of it throughout yeah. entire lives, you know, and then if you decide to become a mother and like all those risks and, and all that gamble that you have to take with that too. But before I forget, I wanted to talk about something that I think I had heard in a sermon or a friend mm -hmm. heard in a sermon. I'm trying to remember, but th it was a priest that was talking about death. And they said that we should not fear death because we die several times in our lifetimes. In our, in our life, right? Throughout our lifetime. And, and he kind of went into like detail about it and said, you know, when you start 
becoming an adult, like that's one death Mm. that you've already had. You know, when you've had a tragedy, like that person dies, you're never, you're no longer that person again and you become a new person. And so there's like this death and rebirth, like all the time. And I try to think about that a lot because it, it really comforts me into the, into just knowing that, yeah, it is true. Like we die several times throughout our lifetimes and we shouldn't really be afraid of it, you know? Yeah. But that's, so, I just thought it was no, brilliant. That's so brilliant. Know? And it's such an interesting point because my ideologies are very heavily Buddhist and influenced. And one of the strongest tenets around Buddhism, particularly when it comes to death, is that, you know, everything is impermanent. And if mm-hmm. you resist that fact, you're setting yourself up for suffering. And that we are not fixed. And when we fear death, we're, fe- we're fearing the loss of an illusion, which is that I was this thing, this solid thing that is going to change for the first time, you know? And it's really interesting to hear that it sounds like that, that priest was giving sort of a similar message that's like, we're constantly changing and evolving and dying. And that is this, a very Buddhist message as well. I definitely wanted to, um, before we we have to sign off, gave you the space if you wanted to offer any words for anyone who's listening who's maybe beginning a grief process or they know that they have a grief process on the horizon, if you just have anything to to say to them, because I know it was sort of, as you said, important to you to, to come on and be able to talk to people about it. I pride myself in being a strong woman and... It's been difficult to deal with strangers staring at me who know what's happened Mm. and stare at me with pity. There's a lot of layers to this, you know, when you're grieving, especially a huge thing like a spouse or like, you know, or a parent. There's a lot of layers to it, but it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to not answer phone calls if you don't want to. It's okay to talk to some people and not to others. I think you have to really, it's hard to explain like what you need because you really don't know at the time and it takes you a few days to kind of figure it out. So at the beginning, like, you know, I had so many people calling me and messaging me and they would say, you know, I don't know what to say, but like, I just want you to know that I'm here. And I would write back, I don't know what to say either because I was in shock and I still am in shock that there's still days that I wake up and kind of remember Mm. like, oh yeah, he's not coming back today, you know? So it's, it's been a roller coaster of emotions and I think that's okay. I think you have to allow yourself that grace, you know, of like, letting it come as it is and you don't have to see anybody you know you can stay home you can talk to people on the phone but I think the worst part is maybe not asking for help or not accepting help because you think you can handle it on your own you know or that's that's a huge thing that a lot of people deal with I think is that they're really afraid to ask for help and I've always been a person who like didn't have a lot of faith in humanity Mm -hmm. but after this happened I had so many people reach out to me and so many people who I thought never gave a damn about me 
even strangers who I didn't know coming to my door to leave flowers and things like that has been so, I'm so grateful for them because they've given me so much hope in humanity. And I'm just really grateful that I have such a great support system of friends and family that have been there for me. And so, yeah, for anybody who's who's suffering, I just kind of want to tell them like, you're not alone. And and also um, there's a lot of resources. Of course, like finding a therapist can be really helpful. I'm working with one right now who's been really helpful for me. There is also a lot of literature, like tons and tons and tons of literature. And I've had a lot of friends that just, and even strangers send me books that I didn't know about. And, and so I've been kind of devouring them as I kind of need time out from like regular life, you know. But yeah, just I think giving yourself that space to just kind of be with those really strong feelings is okay, mm-hmm. you know, and, and nobody has to figure it out right away and it's gonna take a long time. It's gonna take a roller, it's gonna be a roller coaster of emotions and what I've read that really touched on it is that you don't learn to live without the loss, you learn to live with the loss yeah. going forward. Um, and I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you, Miranda, for not like tiptoeing around this subject and, and inviting me to talk about it because I I think I'm a person that my art and, and my conversation can make a lot of people uncomfortable, mm. but I'm really grateful that you're so brave and um and that you've invited me to talk about this very, you know, taboo subject. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for being willing to and being so open about all of it. Because I think, like I mentioned in the email, I'd, I'd wanted to talk to you for, for a long time. And just because I admire the work that you do so much. And death is such an important part of life. I believe that the reason our life has meaning is because it ends. It's, yeah, it's, completely. It, it literally is what is, is, you know, if we went on forever, it wouldn't matter what we do with our time. It wouldn't matter who we love or don't love because we'd have an infinity to get to it all. And the fact that our time is finite is what makes our decisions meaningful. And that art is such an important and powerful way to be that memento mori, to be that voice and... I'm just so glad that you're there and you're doing it and and you're in our community. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I completely agree with what you just said. Completely. 100%. Yeah. So, yeah. So, thank you. And um, I've been thinking about you. I'm going to continue to be thinking about you. And I I hope we can stay in touch and work on something together. Yeah, I'd love to. Please do. Yeah, please do. I love talking to you. Yeah. Very easy. Very easy conversation. (laughs) I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's our show for this week. 2020 has been quite the year here for Pine Copper Lime. We've reached over 30,000 followers on Instagram. I think it's actually almost 35 right now. And our audience has grown quite significantly. So for the next two weeks, we're going to be reaching back in the archives and we're going to play you a couple of older PCL hits that you may have missed. 
We'll be back with new episodes on January 5th with another bi-monthly bilingual episode with our friend and collaborator, Ronaldo Gil Zambrano, and our guest, Danny Gonzalez. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. We'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.